The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. As Marin County Police Detective Steve Nash walked through the house on Saddlewood Court, the knot in his stomach tightened. The living room carpet had been cleaned recently, but still showed faint rusty red stains. The metallic aroma of blood hung in the air. The white tile bathroom was spotless. Every inch of it had been scrubbed clean. With each room he saw, he was more convinced that someone had died here. Nash went back outside to check on the suspect they had apprehended, trying to escape through an open window, 30-year-old Glenn Taylor Helzer. But when Nash stepped out the front door, he found a commotion outside. The back window of the squad car Taylor had been sitting in was popped out of its frame. Glenn Taylor Helzer was gone. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults on the Parcast Network. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into Taylor Helzer and the Children of Thunder a group of radicals who believed Taylor was a prophet destined to lead the Latter-day Saints Church at any cost. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Last week, we followed Glenn Taylor Helzer's upbringing in a strict LDS household and how he was singled out by church leaders as being special. When he started hearing voices at 16, his mother explained, it was the voice of God. 
Taylor nicknamed the voice Spirit and listened to it devoutly. When he was 19, Spirit warned him that the apocalypse was coming. In order to save the LDS church and its followers, Taylor would have to lead them as a warrior priest. He enlisted the help of his brother Justin and another woman he'd met through the church, Don Godman, to fulfill his destiny by any means necessary. He dubbed them the Children of Thunder. On the eve of Taylor's 30th birthday, in the summer of 2000, they began their holy war. This week, we'll follow Taylor and his disciples as they enacted his vision. When things didn't go according to plan, the group resorted to murder. On July 30th, 2000, 30-year-old Taylor, 28-year-old Justin, and 26-year-old Don woke up in a rented house on Saddlewood Court, a cul-de-sac in a quiet neighborhood on the edge of Concord, California. They knelt together in a circle and prayed as they had done so many times before, but this time, they didn't just pray for peace and love, they also declared war on Satan. To finance Taylor's elaborate war plans, he estimated they needed around $20 million. From his time working as a financial advisor at Dean Witter, Taylor knew of a few wealthy clients that could help them raise the money. With Don and Jordan's help, Taylor planned to extort his former clients for cash. Once he had the money, he would use it to train Brazilian orphans as assassins. The assassins would eventually kidnap LDS church leaders and bring them back to Brazil. Once in his captivity, he would force the leaders to write letters that supported Taylor's claim as the head of the church. It was a ludicrous plan from the outset, but Taylor's followers believed in it with absolute conviction. Justin had grown up deferring to Taylor at their mother's command, and Dawn saw him as a charismatic role model from the first time she met him. At his urging, they had participated in large group awareness trainings, which had a debilitating effect on their ability to think critically. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Large group awareness training is also referred to as a thought reform program. It's now widely acknowledged as an effective brainwashing tool. According to the 1990 study, Thought Reform Programs on the Production of Psychiatric Casualties, the majority reaction seen in people who leave thought reform programs, almost regardless of the time spent with the group, is a sense of alienation and confusion resulting from the loss or weakening of previously valued norms, ideals, or goals. Once Justin and Don went through the program, it was much easier for Taylor to make them believe whatever he said. On the first day of their war, Dawn dutifully packed up a briefcase with items they would need. Methamphetamine, a glass pipe, a pencil torch, gloves, handcuffs, a stun gun, and a pistol. To establish an alibi, Taylor called the trio's friend, Deborah McClanahan, and instructed her to buy four movie tickets and dinner for four people that night. Dawn would bring her $100 to cover the costs. He reminded her to save the receipts, Deborah assumed this alibi was related to selling drugs. She didn't ask too many questions, happy with the free meal. When the trio left their house that afternoon, they took two separate cars, Dawn in one and the brothers in another. They drove to a peaceful residential neighborhood and parked outside Bob White's house. 
Bob was a retired Air Force pilot who lived alone. He was number one on Taylor's list to try to collect money from. Dawn kept watch as the two brothers walked up the steps to the front door in dark suits. Taylor knocked. But Bob White was not home. Luckily, they had a backup plan. When Taylor and Jordan knocked on the front door of 85-year-old Ivan and 78-year-old Annette Steinman, the couple smiled and readily welcomed their former financial advisor and his younger brother into their home. Even though they hadn't seen Taylor in a few years, they had always had a friendly relationship. They made small talk for nearly an hour until Taylor and Justin pulled their guns out. Outside, Dawn kept watch, chain-smoking and reading a book. Finally, the brothers emerged from the house with the handcuffed Steinmans and loaded them into their own minivan. They all drove back to Saddlewood Court. Taylor and Justin parked the minivan in the garage and brought the Steinmans inside. Taylor quizzed them on their plans for the next two days. He didn't want any friends or family to get concerned and come looking for them if they didn't show up when they were supposed to. So we had them make calls as necessary. Annette called her hair salon and canceled her appointment. They also called their daughter together and told her they were going on a mini vacation for a few days. After clearing their schedule, Taylor got down to business. He told the Steinmans that he was in some trouble and needed $100,000 from them. He assured them they would be released once he had the money. But, of course, Taylor never planned on letting the Steinmans go. If they identified him to police and he was a suspect in a crime, he would never be allowed to lead the LDS church. But for now, he let them hold on to that hope. In the meantime, he started coaching Dawn to impersonate Annette. The Steinmans had plenty of money in their Dean Witter account, but the majority was tied up in assets. Taylor wanted Dawn to call and act like Annette and instruct their current financial advisor to liquidate. They stayed up all night, smoking meth and practicing. Then around 6 a.m., Taylor and Dawn drove to a payphone and called the Dean Witter office. Posing as Annette, Dawn instructed the baffled manager to liquidate their accounts. The manager warned her that there would be steep cancellation fees, but she insisted he take care of it immediately and hung up the phone. Taylor and Don drove home and celebrated their victory with more meth. It's not clear why Taylor asked Don to pose as Annette when she had previously agreed to make calls to her hair salon and daughter to help his plot. It could be that he worried about Annette going off script. But more likely, Taylor's delusions and instructions from Spirit were so entrenched that even when it made sense, he wouldn't deviate from the plan he'd obsessed over for weeks. According to the 2008 study, Reasoning Anomalies Associated with Delusions in Schizophrenia, delusions are espoused with a degree of conviction that is unwarranted by the evidence at hand and resist revision even when the delusional content is fantastic. Later that morning, Taylor decided he had no more need for Ivan and Annette. He forced them to each take 6-Rohypnol, commonly known as the date rape drug, thinking they would overdose and slowly lose consciousness. As the pills kicked in, Taylor made Ivan and Annette write two checks, totaling $100,000. He instructed them to make the checks out to his 22-year-old girlfriend, Selena Bishop. Taylor had started dating her a few weeks ago with the express purpose of making her a scapegoat. He'd even given her a fake name, Jordan. Selena would cash the checks, 
give Taylor the money, and he would either kill her or leave her alive to take the fall for the Steinmans. To Taylor, it was an airtight plan. Once Ivan and Annette were fully subdued by the Rohypnol, Taylor and Justin dragged them into the bathroom. But they didn't die. Impatient, Taylor tried to smother them with plastic sheeting, but they fought back, clinging to life. Frustrated, Taylor and Justin grabbed the Steinmans and started bashing their heads against the tile floor. Annette's skull cracked, but she continued to struggle. Eventually, Taylor dragged her over to the bathtub and slit her throat with Justin's hunting knife. Dawn stood motionless in the doorway and watched Annette die. Ivan's heart eventually stopped from the combination of the drugs and the beating. Their work finished, Taylor, Justin, and Dawn left the bathroom. But Taylor, still high on meth, became paranoid that police might realize too quickly that the Steinmans were dead. Trying to fabricate a paper trail, he had Dawn write a check from Annette's checkbook, made out to Ivan, for $10,000. That afternoon, Dawn drove 50 miles to a bank in Petaluma to deposit it. Taylor also picked out a disguise for her to make her less conspicuous. She wore a lime green pantsuit, a straw cowboy hat, and used a wheelchair. Despite her appearance and the fact that she'd misspelled Steinman, Dawn successfully deposited the check. She wheeled out of the bank with a smile. In the meantime, Taylor and Justin got to work dismembering the bodies for disposal. They used a reciprocating saw, leaving pools of blood on the floor and red streaks on the walls. Then they collected the parts in black trash bags. Taylor called Dawn and told her to pick up some firewood on her way home so they could burn other pieces of evidence. When she walked in the door, there were black trash bags lining the hallway. Then, Selena Bishop called Taylor's phone. He had told her previously they would go camping that week, but he had completely forgotten. Taylor quickly pushed her off the phone and told her he'd call back. After hanging up, Taylor decided that he didn't actually need Selena to deposit the checks for him. Dawn didn't have any issue depositing the first Steinman check. She could impersonate Selena just as easily as she'd impersonated Annette. The fact that the first check had been written from one Steinman to the other for a tenth of the amount didn't seem to factor in. The next morning, July 31st, Dawn wore the same lime green outfit when she wheeled into a branch of Selena's bank and asked to speak to the manager. She told the bank manager, Vicki Sexton, that her friend, Selena, needed open heart surgery but didn't have insurance. Luckily, Selena's grandparents sent money to pay for the operation, but because Selena was in the hospital, she couldn't come to the bank to make the deposit and sent Dawn instead. Dawn implored Vicky to deposit the two Steinman checks into Selena's account right away so she could access the money and pay for this life-saving procedure. Vicky wanted to help, but first she called Dean Witter to make sure there was enough money in the account for the two checks to clear. The Dean Witter rep told her she'd need to provide the Steinman's social security numbers to access account information. Dawn wasn't expecting that. She didn't have the numbers. Panicking, Dawn told Vicky one of the Steinmans would call her with the information and then wheeled out of the bank. Back home, Taylor was furious at this hiccup. He had expected the money would already be in Selena's account. Now they had to figure out damage control. Luckily, Ivan Steinman had left his and his wife's social security cards in his wallet. 
Later that afternoon, Dawn called Vicki pretending to be Annette and left the social security numbers on her voicemail. The next morning, after Vicki heard the message, she followed up with Dean Witter. The $100,000 was there, but she didn't remove the account hold. Something felt off to her. She wanted to speak with the Steinmans. When Dawn called to follow up, Vicki told her that she wouldn't release the money until she heard from the Steinmans directly. This was the final straw for Taylor. He called off the entire scheme. They'd have to figure out another way to get the money they needed. And in the meantime, they would tie up loose ends, starting with Selena Bishop. Coming up, the Children of Thunder tried to cover their tracks. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. On Monday, July 31st, 2000, 30-year-old Taylor Helzer... 28-year-old Justin Helzer and 26-year-old Don Godman hit a roadblock in their war plans. After extorting and killing Ivan and Annette Steinman, they were unable to cash the two checks they'd forced the elderly couple to write, totaling $100,000. Thinking that it would disguise his involvement, Taylor had instructed the Steinmans to make the checks out to his 22-year-old girlfriend, Selena Bishop, But now that Selena's bank manager was suspicious of the checks, Taylor wouldn't risk being caught. The only solution, he reasoned, was to kill Selena. Taylor and his followers didn't have any problems with killing to get what they wanted. One of the core principles from group awareness training that Taylor constantly parroted was that there was no right or wrong in the service of the greater good. To Taylor, Justin, and Dawn, Killing a few people was a small price to pay so that Taylor could save the LDS church and bring peace on earth. On Wednesday, August 2nd, Taylor met Selena at the Bison Brewing Company just after 7 p.m. Eventually, Taylor invited her back to the house. Soon after they arrived, Dawn led Selena to the bathroom to show her how it had been remodeled. Justin hovered a few steps away, holding a hammer, but Selena never turned her back to him. He couldn't muster the courage to kill her, looking her in the face. Taylor quickly made a new plan. He suggested they all four hang out together, playing Risk, drinking wine, and smoking pot. During a break in the game, Taylor and Don crushed up several Rohypnol pills and slipped them into Selena's wine. But she noticed the floating particles. Taylor quickly took it back, apologizing for the dirty glass and pouring her a fresh one. He needed yet another plan. Taylor offered to give Selena a back massage. 
He spread a blanket out on the floor, and Selena laid down on her stomach. As Taylor lovingly massaged her, Justin took up his hammer. Selena cried out, feebly raising her hand to protect herself, as Justin brought the hammer down again and again until the cries stopped. The brothers quickly wrapped Selena up in the blanket and carried her into the kitchen, leaving a trail of blood on the carpet. Taylor ordered Dawn to clean up the mess while he and Justin disposed of the body. While Justin set up a sawhorse in the bathroom, Dawn realized Selena was still alive. She could hear her moaning in the kitchen. Taylor struck her a few more times with the hammer. Selena went quiet, but her leg kept twitching. Taylor and Justin carried her to the bathtub and filled it with water. Taylor beckoned Dawn into the bathroom. She was terrified. Taylor looked at her and said, Spirit says you get to know this isn't a dream. Then he slit Selena's throat and pushed her underwater. They dismembered her, the same as the Steinmans. When they were done, Justin dropped off Selena's car in a random parking lot and then returned home to clean the bathroom again. That night, Taylor and Dawn burned some of the evidence in the house, Selena's clothes, the blanket they wrapped her in. And as Taylor watched the flames, he suddenly remembered that Selena's mom, Jenny Villarin, could identify him. They had only met once before, and she thought his name was Jordan, but it was too big of a risk. She had to be killed, too. He knew that Jenny was staying at her daughter's apartment while Selena was supposed to be camping with Taylor. Taylor dressed all in black for the late night raid. While he drove, Dawn wiped down bullets so they wouldn't have any fingerprints and loaded two guns. It was just after 4 a.m. when Taylor pulled up to the small basement studio apartment. Taylor entered through the garage and opened the apartment door. He was surprised when, instead of Jenny, a man leapt out of bed. 54-year-old Jim Gamble. Taylor fired wildly and struck Jim's chest, arm, leg, and neck. As Jim collapsed, Jenny sat up in bed. Taylor shot her twice in the face and ran from the apartment. A few hours later, Taylor, Justin, and Dawn ate breakfast together. It was now Thursday. With the help of methamphetamines, they'd all been awake basically since Sunday. They had one more job to complete, dispose of the bodies. To further cover their tracks, Taylor wanted to remove the teeth from the heads of the three victims in the house to make them harder to identify. In the bathroom, Dawn held the heads steady as Justin used a chisel and hammer to knock out the teeth. They put the heads in a duffel bag with other limbs and loaded everything into the back of Justin's truck with the other trash bags. Then they hitched up a rented jet ski and trailer and drove to the Sacramento Delta, a remote area where rivers intersect, forming several hidden inlets. Taylor and Jordan launched the jet ski from one of the marinas while Dawn drove the truck downriver. She parked and waited for the brothers to find her. When they arrived, they loaded the body-filled bags onto the jet ski two at a time and dumped them in the middle of the river in the deep water. From a distance, no one could see anything suspicious, just two men on a jet ski enjoying the water. By the time they were done with all nine bags, the sun was setting. They headed home, stopping for dinner along the way and toasting their accomplishment with tequila shots. 
Taylor thought he deserved a reward after a job well done. Some of his friends were taking a trip to a music festival called Reggae on the River that weekend, and he decided to join them. Before leaving, he told Justin and Don to finish scrubbing the house of evidence, get rid of the Steinman's van, and find a better place to hide Selena's car. Justin and Don were happy to take over the cleanup process from their profit. Taylor left the two of them around midnight on Thursday. After he left, Don and Justin wiped down the Steinman's van and drove it to a neighborhood in Oakland. The next morning, Friday, Justin loaded up his truck with more evidence to dispose of. Bags of ashes, clothing from the Steinmans, the reciprocating saw, a skill saw, and bloody pieces of the sawhorse. Together, he and Don dumped the evidence in trash cans all over the city. Then they picked up Selena's car from the parking lot where they had left it. After wiping it down for fingerprints, they ditched it in downtown Petaluma. Before leaving Selena's Honda behind, Dawn planted Ivan Steinman's wedding ring in the car. Taylor told her to do so, believing it would trick the cops into thinking Ivan had left his wife and run away with Selena. Then, Dawn met up with Deborah McClanahan at an Applebee's for dinner. When she returned home, she finally slept after her week-long meth bender. On Saturday, Justin and Dawn tried to clean the blood-stained carpets with carpet cleaner, but it did little to help. The stains wouldn't come out, and the process made the whole house smell like moldy death. Dawn reached a breaking point and told Justin she had to get out of the Saddlewood house. She drove to Deborah's for the night. She also brought a few more pieces of evidence with her to stash, including the wheelchair she had used at the banks. At the same time, the families of the victims were being notified of their deaths. David Villarin, Jenny's older brother and Selena's uncle, heard from one of Jenny's friends that she had been killed. David called the Marin County Sheriff's Office for confirmation and then informed the rest of the family. Two of David's daughters, Melissa and Lusha, knowing how upset their cousin would be by the news, tried to get in touch with Selena as soon as possible but they also knew she was on a camping trip with her boyfriend, Jordan. So when she didn't answer her phone, they weren't surprised. They kept calling anyway. Marin County Detective Steve Nash noticed how many times Jordan's name had already come up in speaking with the family of the victim. But no one seemed to have met him or knew what he looked like. The only thing a few friends knew was that Selena was supposed to be camping with him at Yosemite and would be back Sunday night. On Sunday morning, Justin decided the carpets needed to be professionally cleaned. He called around until he found a guy willing to come out on a weekend. After looking at the extensive stains, the cleaner quoted Justin $750 for the job. He agreed, but had to summon Dawn home so she could pay with her credit card. When Dawn arrived, they told the carpet cleaner, matter-of-factly, that the red stains were from spilled Kool-Aid. When Taylor got back from the music festival that night, he found big fans blowing in the living room to dry the wet carpet. It looked much better than before, but red spots were still visible. And while Taylor was now home, Selena was not. Friends and family became concerned. Nash learned that Jordan supposedly had a brother named Justin and that they lived somewhere in Concord. He cross-checked that information with Selena's pager and discovered the man's real name was Glenn Taylor Helzer. 
On Monday, August 7th, Detective Nash drove from Marin County, where James and Jenny had been killed, to the Concord Police Department. Not only was he trying to avoid ruffling any jurisdictional feathers, he hoped he would be able to enlist Concord's SWAT team to try to apprehend Taylor during a house call. Outside the police station, Nash passed by a few reporters. They asked questions about the disappearance of an elderly couple, Ivan and Annette Steinman. But Nash didn't see the connection between the cases yet. He wouldn't realize it until he found the dismembered bodies. Coming up, detectives recover the bodies of the Steinmans and Selena Bishop. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cashback rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, the conclusion of our story. On August 7th, 2000, Detective Steve Nash prepared for a raid on the Children of Thunder. He believed that 30-year-old Glenn Taylor Helzer was related to the disappearance of 22-year-old Selena Bishop and her mother, Jenny Villarin. At 6 a.m., Nash and a SWAT team arrived at the house on Saddlewood Court. Police gave a cursory knock on the front door. A battering ram followed. Justin and Dawn were peacefully taken into custody, but Taylor, wearing only boxers, tried escaping out a window. But when he hopped the fence in the backyard, he practically landed on two officers. They threw Taylor to the ground and cuffed him. As Nash marched Taylor to a squad car, he confirmed that he was also Jordan and that he knew Selena. He said they had planned to go to Yosemite the past weekend, but the day before the trip, he and Selena had a fight. When Selena didn't show up or answer her phone, he went to reggae on the river instead. But when the detective brought up Selena's mother, Jenny Villarin, Taylor's demeanor changed. He stopped answering questions. And when the squad car started to pull away from the curb, Taylor used the force of his body to pop out a window, rolled out of the car, and took off running. Trying to escape, he ran through backyards in the neighborhood, looking for a way into one of the houses. He burst through the back door of a house and, miming a gun, pointed his fingers at the man inside and demanded the keys to his car. 
But the man had two large dogs. They lunged at Taylor, and he fled. When Taylor approached Mary Mazaki's back door, she thought he was one of her adult son's friends and opened the sliding glass door for him. Taylor grabbed a knife from the kitchen counter and threatened to kill her if she called the police. He demanded she hand over the keys to her car, but she stammered that her car was in the shop. Taylor didn't believe her, but she insisted. She even showed him the phone book, still open to a page of rental car companies. Hoping to keep him calm, Mary gave Taylor a change of clothes, and he finally fled from her house. She locked the door behind him and turned to find her son, who she thought was asleep, in the hallway, already on the phone with the police. Taylor continued cutting through backyards, jumping fences as he headed towards Concord Boulevard. Thanks to the tip from Mary's son, Taylor was quickly surrounded and taken into custody. Once Taylor was detained, Detective Nash started combing the Saddlewood house for evidence. Several items made him suspicious. Handcuffs, duct tape, ecstasy, and some of the Steinman's clothing. Taylor, Justin, and Dawn had managed to destroy some of the evidence, but in their drug-induced state, they had left a lot of it behind. For now, the police had plenty to hold them while they figured out what happened. When Vicki Sexton, the bank manager, saw a news report about the Steinman's disappearance, she immediately called the police and relayed the story about the woman who had tried to cash two large checks from their account. She mentioned that the checks had been made out to Selena Bishop, but because she had called the Petaluma police station and Selena's case was being handled by the Concord station, the officer didn't make the connection. It wasn't until the bags filled with body parts resurfaced in the river that police started to realize how all these murders and disappearances were related. A man named Steve Seibert was jet skiing in the Delta on Monday afternoon when he came across a duffel bag floating in the water. When he got the bag to shore, he unzipped it and found six rocks, a concrete stepping stone, black plastic trash bags, and a human torso. Seibert called the police. By Wednesday, they had recovered enough bags from the river to say definitively that the body parts belonged to Ivan Steinman, Annette Steinman, and Selena Bishop. Once police identified the Steinmans, they called their daughter to notify her of Ivan and Annette's death. David Villarin wasn't so lucky. Because he was only Selena's uncle, not her direct next of kin, he learned about her murder and dismemberment from a news report. They still weren't sure how their deaths related to Jenny Villarin and her friend, but they already felt strongly that the Children of Thunder were somehow responsible for all five homicides. Detective Nash looked for answers at the Saddlewood house. Some of the evidence collected included the hammer that killed Selena and a scrap of paper that read, Head and Teeth, Two Hours. This evidence furthered the detective's theory that Ivan, Annette, and Selena had been killed and dismembered there. As the evidence mounted against her sons, Karma Helzer searched for a private lawyer to represent them. But the costs were tremendous, so the brothers' cases, as well as Dawn's, went to the county public defender's office. It didn't take long for the public defender, David Headley, to determine just how out of touch with reality his client was. Dawn still fully believed that Taylor was a prophet who would protect her, which meant she didn't have any need for attorneys. She believed that everything Taylor had done was for Jesus Christ. 
Headley brought in one of his neighbors to examine Dawn, clinical psychologist Dr. Margaret Singer. She was an expert on how leaders of cults brainwash their followers and had testified during Patricia Hearst's trial. Singer was also an expert on large group awareness trainings and thought reform programs. According to Singer, the tactics of a thought reform process destabilize individuals' sense of self by radically altering their worldview. This causes them to accept a new version of reality and develop dependency on the organization. Taylor insisted that both Dawn and Justin attend this program. Headley hoped that hearing Singer's explanation of thought reform would help Dawn understand what Taylor had done to her and lead her to reject his influence. But Dawn didn't waver in her conviction that Taylor was a prophet. While Margaret worked with Dawn, investigators continued to search for evidence. One name kept popping up, Deborah McClanahan. Deborah originally told detectives that she went to dinner and a movie with Taylor, Justin, and Dawn on July 30th. But that didn't line up at all with the evidence in the Saddlewood house. Deborah tried to back up her story with the receipts she'd saved. But once police told Deborah that this was an alibi for murder, not a drug deal as she'd assumed, she broke down and told them the truth. She wasn't with the trio at all on July 30th. Then, she revealed to detectives that Dawn had given her some stuff to hide back at her apartment. Deborah showed detectives the wheelchair Dawn had used at the bank, as well as a safe that Dawn had placed in her guest room months before. The safe contained a gun and two boxes of 9mm ammunition, the same caliber Jim and Jenny had been shot with. They also found Selena's driver's license and social security card. The safe also held evidence from the Steinmans. Detectives recovered Annette Steinman's wallet, prescription insulin for Ivan, both the Steinman's checkbooks, retirement account statements, and a bank deposit hold document with Vicki Sexton's business card. They also found Dawn's handwritten script with her explanation of Selena's open heart surgery and why she needed the money ASAP. The evidence definitively linked the deaths of Jenny Villarin and Jim Gamble to the three homicides in Concord. On September 7, 2000, Taylor, Justin, and Dawn pled not guilty to all five homicides. As the defense attorneys prepared for trial, Margaret Singer continued her efforts to deprogram Dawn. She suggested they bring in David Sullivan, a private investigator and cult deprogrammer, to help. David Headley needed to prove that Taylor had broken his client's moral compass and made her help commit crimes. Sullivan not only helped deprogram cult members, he also had infiltrated cults and taken part in large group awareness programs similar to Harmony and Impact. In March 2001, he enrolled in the same Harmony course Dawn took part in to figure out why she was still so committed to Taylor's cause. The seminar was terrible, even for Sullivan. By the end of the second day, he was mentally and physically exhausted. He could see how the participants were broken down with behavioral psychology until they had reverted to a mob mentality. It made them much easier to manipulate and control. Sullivan almost quit, but he stuck with it at Headley's urging. When he got out, he was able to relate to Dawn in a new way by sharing anecdotes of his own experiences with her. This helped him explain to her how the techniques she was subjugated to had helped Taylor convince her that he was a prophet. Finally, Dawn understood that she had been manipulated. 
it was a huge moment. It had felt previously like Dawn was pushing down on the rock they were trying to roll uphill. Now that she understood Taylor's sinister effect on her, they could try to mount a credible defense and help her avoid the death penalty. On December 20th, 2001, Judge Douglas Cunningham ruled that the case would go to trial and that all three members of the Children of Thunder would be eligible for the death penalty. Dawn's attorneys were glad she no longer thought Taylor was a prophet, but they needed more if they were going to save her life. They brought in Park Dietz, a famous forensic psychiatrist, to interview Dawn. He rarely testified for the defense, so having him on their side would be a big win. Park interviewed Dawn over the course of several months and finally came to the conclusion that Dawn was not a sociopath or a psychopath. He determined from their conversations that she was not predisposed to commit these types of crimes and had been subjected to psychological manipulation. Finally, he noted that Dawn was insane at the time the crimes occurred. David Headley took these findings to lead prosecutor Hal Jewett. It took some doing, but eventually he convinced Jewett that Dawn could be used as a witness to secure the death penalty for the brothers. To this point, no one knew exactly who had killed who, which is a huge sticking point when jurors are deciding whether or not a person deserves the death penalty. Dawn could provide that clarity. Jewett agreed as long as Dawn passed a polygraph that cleared her of any of the murders. She did and agreed to plead guilty to 13 felonies. She was still sentenced to 25 years to life, but it beat death row. On Tuesday, March 2, 2004, Taylor's attorney, Suzanne Chapeau, argued that Taylor and Justin should be tried separately. Judge Marion O'Malley denied the request. Then, three days later, Taylor changed his plea. He now pled guilty to every charge against him. It was stunning news, but Taylor was direct and steadfast in his decision. He simply had no defense to the charges against him. He did what he did because he thought it was the right thing to do. No court could judge him more than God. Justin, on the other hand, maintained his plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. His trial began on April 30th, 2004, almost four years after the murders. For the first time in his life, the younger Helzer brother took the stage over his brother. The trial lasted less than six weeks, and on June 16th, it took the jury less than seven hours to find him guilty of all charges. Both Justin and Taylor were sentenced to death for the five murders. After sentencing, Taylor had the chance to speak to family and friends of his victims. He said, quote, I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry. I clearly see now that my actions were unspeakably horrific. I was actually under the impression I was doing a good thing. If I were evil, I would enjoy your misery. If I'm not evil, your hatred is misplaced and harmful to you. There wasn't anyone left to preach to who believed him. Taylor was led out of the courtroom alone with no one to follow him. Taylor currently sits on death row at San Quentin Prison. Tragically, Justin took his own life in 2013 before the sentencing could be carried out. The Children of Thunder are a disturbing warning of the dangers of untreated mental illness and religious radicalization. 
Taylor was able to operate in the public light for so long, undetected and untreated, because those closest to him mischaracterized his schizophrenia as divine intervention. Group awareness training was also a key factor in shaping Taylor and his misguided cult. These programs are still used today, though they are widely regarded as brainwashing tools that have more similarities to cults than legitimate self-help programs when placed in the wrong hands. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. Cults is written by David Hurst and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.